Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Quinn Mosier, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Well, thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. After a slight break, we continue our series through the Gospel of John. Today, we look at a beloved story in John chapter 5 about the healing of a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus, the eternal Logos, heals him with a mere word. So listen in now to episode 55, The Healing at the Pool. Today, we'll build on our previous study by covering the next major unit in John's Gospel, the so-called festival cycle, that is, chapters 5 through 10. And I'll explain why the term festival cycle and why chapters 5 through 10. Uh, John was a master storyteller, master storyteller, who structured his Gospel very deliberately, I believe. I think it's demonstrable. And what's more, as we see in his purpose statement, end of chapter 20, and in the conclusion to the entire gospel, end of chapter 21, he was highly selective in what he chose to include. We'll talk also about uh, some uh, likely criteria for selection that I think we can infer from what he does record. Uh, In his purpose statement, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, the centrality of believing occurs twice in the purpose statement alone. And then John closes the entire gospel with the words. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John 21, 25. So you have sort of a dual conclusion uh, in John's gospel. Very fascinating. Uh, Now, please be patient uh, this morning. I promise we'll eventually get around to taking an in-depth look at the healing of the lame man in chapter 5. But before we do, I'd like to discuss a few broader questions, such as, why does John select these particular signs? And why do scholars believe that chapters 5 through 10 are literary unit? And why is this unit commonly called the festival cycle? And then also, how do chapters 5 through 10 connect with what goes before and comes after this unit? Sometimes called discourse analysis, which is a simple way of of delineating proper boundary markers. And I think that's important for teaching and preaching, how to determine, you know, how to uh, break down a given text of Scripture. So first, why these signs? Uh, We've seen that John acknowledges that Jesus performed many other signs in the purpose statement and that he did many other things in the final conclusion of the gospel, which raises the question, why then did John include these particular signs and these other things Jesus did from among the wealth of material from which he drew, whether written or oral or other eyewitness recollection? I believe... One important criterion in John's selection was material not featured in the other Gospels that had already been written. When John composed his narrative, namely the so-called synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I've already mentioned that the material in the Cana cycle is almost entirely unique to John. 
and later units like the Farewell Discourse uh, is as well. So in many ways, when reading John's gospel, uh, one gets the impression that John aimed to complement and supplement, though not replace, the other gospels. In other words, he tried not to repeat material that's already found in the earlier gospels, or at least um, if he did feature a uh, unit that had already been mentioned in the other gospels, such as, as we'll see, the feeding of the 5,000, he tries to find creative ways to deepen his reader's understanding of that material. That's what's earned him the, the moniker, the spiritual gospel. Among the unique characters in John's gospel are, as we've seen last time, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Um, also the, the layman, as we'll see today, and the man born blind in chapter 9, who, of course, uttered the famous words, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. John 9, 25, and also Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So John had some unique access to material passed over for whatever reason uh, by the three earlier evangelists. When it comes to Jesus' teaching, among the most noteworthy contributions are several extended discourses, such as the Bread of Life discourse. Look at that um, uh, after lunch, chapter 6, the Good Shepherd Discourse, chapter 10, and the Discourse about the Vine and the Branches, uh, chapter 15, all very well known. And of course, the uh, Vine and the Branches is part of his larger uh, unit, uh, typically referred to as either Upper Room Discourse or Farewell Discourse, chapters 13 to 17. Um, and particularly that, that final discourse provides a unique and fascinating glimpse of Jesus' final hours with his followers that's not matched and paralleled in any of the uh, earlier Gospels. So that would be a first purpose, material that's, for whatever reason, not found in the other Gospels. A second, I think, demonstrable criterion for John's inclusion of material in his Gospel was his avowed purpose, the purpose statement, to present selected, and I might add, particularly striking messianic signs of Jesus so that his readers may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, and in one of my publications, I've argued that John selected seven signs of Jesus. Most would agree, though they might not all agree on what that seventh sign is, uh, including, as we've seen last year, the temple cleansing. But the question is, why these particular signs? What do I mean by particularly striking? Certainly the Gospels, the other Gospels, have, have a vast number of miracles Jesus performed. I think one thing that virtually all these Johannine signs have in common uh, is, as I mentioned, that they're particularly striking man manifestations of Jesus' messianic mission and often involve significant numbers, whether it's a large quantity of something or some other numerical uh, symbolism. Uh, just consider with me in the, in the seven signs that John includes. The first one, uh, Jesus turns 120 to 150 gallons of water into wine. Uh, that's a large amount of water. Um, makes the miracle even more striking. Uh, secondly, he promises to raise the temple of his body in three days while the temple had been built 46 years ago. So there's the contrast between the three days and the 46 years. Um, thirdly, he healed a man long distance at precisely one o'clock in the afternoon. 
And that's very central in the narration of that miracle. Uh, or as it says in the original Greek, at the, uh, Greek, at the seventh hour, uh, because Jews started counting the hours of the day with sunrise at approximately uh, six o'clock in the morning. That's at the end of chapter four. Uh, fourth, uh, and this is now our territory uh, today, he healed a man who had been crippled for 38 years. Um, again, drawing attention to just how amazing a feat that was to uh, heal someone who'd been uh, invalid for that length of time. Fifthly, he fed 5,000 men, plus women and children. So the feeding of the 5,000 was really more like the feeding of the approximately, I don't know, 15 or 20,000 when you add in, you know, women and children. That's just the heads of households. Uh, sixthly, healed a man born blind. And sorry, there's no numbers here. I guess you can't top uh, healing somebody who'd never been able to see. Uh, virtually unprecedented. I think Craig Keener, who's an uh, incredible expert on, on, on historical background, uh, says that we have no ancient evidence of anyone healing someone who'd been born blind. Remarkable. Uh, and seventh, Jesus raised the man Lazarus who'd been dead in the tomb for four days. Again, just imagine that. He'd been, he'd been dead for four full days. Um, and so I think in each case, this is not even just me trying to find some common ground. I think when you read the narrative of those seven signs, John draws special attention to that particular number, the one o'clock precisely in the afternoon, or the four days, or uh, you know some of the other uh, numbers I mentioned. And so this is John's way of highlighting particularly striking signs of Jesus. And he also includes, which is very interesting, information that eyewitnesses typically would have remembered, whether specific numbers that I've mentioned or other minor yet important details, such as that in the case of the feeding of the 5,000, there was much grass in the place. Not mentioned in the other Gospels. Or in John 12, 3, that the fragrance of the perfume Mary poured out at the anointing filled the entire room. You had to be there to know that and to remember that even 60 years after the fact. So in keeping with his purpose then, John selected material that underscored the singular and central claim in his Gospel that Jesus was the Messiah and Son of God. Material that he believed was uniquely suited to lead his readers to put their trust in Jesus. Also borne out by the fact that the verb to believe, Greek pisteo, is found almost a hundred times in the gospel. I think it's like 96 times. And that many gospel characters, as I mentioned, serve as representative figures of either a trusting or unbelieving response toward Jesus. And of course, in our study of, of chapters 3 through 4 of John's gospel last year, we've seen this to be the case negatively with Nicodemus, the Jewish rabbi, and positively with the Samaritan woman. In the festival cycle, as we'll see, John includes a similar study of comparisons and contrasts between the layman in chapter 5 and the man born blind in chapter 9. In addition, Jesus' signs are often linked with either a major discourse or an I am saying of Jesus, or even both. For example, in chapter 6, Jesus performs the sign of feeding the 5,000. He proclaims that I am the bread of life uh, and delivers the so-called bread of life discourse. And incidentally, the actual miracle 
only takes up 15 verses in John's gospel. But then the bread of life discourse takes up more like 35 or 40 verses. So you see that John strongly focuses on the explication of the significance of the miracle rather than just merely recording it and expecting his readers to figure out for themselves what's so significant about that. So just to summarize, uh, John's selection of material for inclusion in his gospel was guided, I think, by at least three criteria. Again, I'm just inductively trying to infer that as best as I can from the gospel itself. First, whether material was already included in one or several of the other gospels. And when you look at the seven signs, by the way, only one out of seven, the feeding of the 5,000, is found in the other gospels. It's true that in addition, John also records a temple cleansing, but I think it's a different one from the other gospels, and a healing of an official son other than the one that the synoptics record. Uh, so the second criterion is then whether a messianic son of Jesus was particularly striking and memorable. It's almost always, as I've tried to show, connected with large or unusual numbers. And thirdly, whether a given action or teaching of Jesus could be used to support the claim that Jesus was the Messiah and Son of God and thus could lead his readers to believe in Jesus. So after these preliminaries, let's now turn to a closer study of the festival cycle in chapters 5 through 10. We saw in the first workshop that chapters 2 through 4 are still relatively free of major controversy, except perhaps the, the temple cleansing where uh, the authorities uh, challenged Jesus' uh, infringement upon their turf, uh, the temple area. Um, uh, because the Cana cycle still depicts the early stages of Jesus' ministry. Uh, John, of all the Gospels, is probably the most chronological. Uh, but all of this changes now in chapter 5 and continues to build in the chapters that follow. So chapters 5 through 10, Jesus' uh, attendance of various festivals is characterized by this escalating controversy, which adds to the suspense and the drama that builds all the way up until the, the passion narrative uh, later on. And so, again, as in the Cana cycle, I'm going to argue and try to show in a moment that chapters 5 through 10, that, that festival cycle unit, are bound together by a literary inclusio. And the theme of that inclusio is Jesus' claim to deity his claim to be God. Of all the Gospels, John is the strongest uh, to focus on that particular claim. Um, in John 5.18, toward the beginning of the festival cycle, the evangelist tells us this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking his Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. We look at John 5.16. It just talks about the opposition being because of Jesus' alleged Sabbath breaking. But then two verses later, uh, John adds the idea of alleged blasphemy and Jesus' deity. And then toward the end of the festival cycle, um, chapter 10, John narrates Jesus' claim in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. And by the way, the Greek there is neuter, the word one, not 
masculine. In other words, they're, we're, they're united. They're one thing, one entity. We would look at it today as part of a, the Trinity, uh, not one person. Of course, they're three persons, but they're one God. And so the Greek perfectly reflects that. And then at once, John tells us, this, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And then when Jesus asked them for which of his many good works they were trying to stone him, they replied, not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And so you have this reference to the authorities alleging that Jesus made himself out to be God in both 518 and 1033. Very similar phrase, and I think John deliberately wants his readers to understand that that entire unit, chapters 5 through 10, is bracketed by the main issue was Jesus God, or was he not? And of course, all of this then is building up toward the final climax in the gospel, Jesus' Roman trial, where the Jewish leaders tell Pilate in John 19, 7, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So we see the references to Jesus' alleged blasphemy framing the entire festival cycle in chapters 5 through 10 and foreshadow um, the climax of the gospel. So what's more, on a structural level, um, and this is partly a workshop on, on how to read John in light of his, his intentional ordering and structuring, on a structural level, we can detect an even more all-encompassing inclusio that connects not just 5 through 10, but it connects the entire material between chapter 1, verse 19, and the end of chapter 10. Uh, in John 1, 19, which follows immediately on the prologue, uh, we read, and this is the testimony of John, as in John the Baptist. And then in the chapters that follow, John is identified as a witness to Jesus, as the friend of the bridegroom, chapter uh, 3, verse 29, and there's a lamp that's shown for a while, John 5, 35. So notice that the last of these references to John as a lamp that's shown for a while is found in chapter 5, beginning of the festival cycle, in John's gospel. And then mirroring this reference, we find at the end of the festival cycle, in chapter 10, a rather surprising final reference to John the Baptist. I say surprising because we haven't heard, about, uh, heard of John the Baptist for five long chapters. But at the end of chapter 10, verses 40 to 42, we read, Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign. Very interesting. He's talking about signs here, highlighting that important theme. Uh, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So that tells you that pretty much everything in chapter 1, verse 19, through the end of the festival cycle, John wants us to read in light of the fact that the absence of sign on John the Baptist's part, but that John's witness turned out to be true. So why this final reference to John the Baptist? Um, as I mentioned, uh, as early as 324, the evangelist had told his readers and then aside, for John had not yet been put in prison. So for all practical purposes, John the Baptist has not been a character in the Johanna narrative since the end of chapter 3, where John had announced, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I know we usually 
take this in a more kind of theological sense. But I think it's also true literally and literarily as far as the Johanna narrative is concerned. References to the Baptist have dramatically decreased ever since his early witness to Jesus. Why then mention John one more time as late as the end of the festival cycle in chapter 10? Close to the end of Jesus' mission and just prior to the raising of Lazarus, Jesus' final seventh and climactic uh, sign recorded in John's gospel. The answer, I believe, lies in the fact that the fourth evangelist wants to signal to his readers that chapters 5 through 10, and on a larger scale, even 119 through the end of chapter 10, constitute a coherent literary unit, what scholars have called the Johannine Festival Cycle. In this way, both major ministry cycles and literary units in the first 10 chapters of John's Gospel are bracketed by inclusios. The Cana cycle, as we've seen, by references to Jesus' signs in Cana at 2.11 and 4.54, and the festival cycle by references to Jewish opposition to Jesus' claim to deity in 5.18 and 10.30-33, and also to John the Baptist in 1.19 and 10.40-42. Which brings us to yet one more question, why label this unit festival cycle? Established that 5 through 10 is literary unit, but what's, what's with the idea of uh, festivals? Um, of course, I should uh, acknowledge that, that Jesus is already shown to attend the Passover in the Cana cycle as early as uh, John 2, uh, verses 13 and 23. So references to Jewish festivals are not unique to the festival cycles in, uh, cycle in chapters 5 through 10. So I'm not arguing that. What is unique, though, is that festivals serve as a continual structural marker in chapters 5 through 10. If you consider with me, chapter 5 finds Jesus at an unnamed festival in Jerusalem. More about that later. It just says a Jewish festival or a feast of the Jews. Uh, chapter 6 shows him at Passover in Galilee. Chapters 7 and 8 feature Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, in Jerusalem. And in the final episode, in chapter 10, shows Jesus at the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, again in Jerusalem. That's interesting. That's an intertestamental feast that uh, dates back to the Maccabean uh, revolt in uh, the mid-2nd century B.C., so that's not even in the Bible. That is a, a festival that uh, is of more recent origin. Uh, in this way, John presents Jesus as the fulfillment of the symbolism inherent in these various festivals, as embodying in his very own person the essence to which each, each of these festivals pointed. Jesus was infinitely greater than the entire Jewish festival calendar, and in him all these various festivals found their multifaceted messianic fulfillment. We see a similar argument in the book of Hebrews, by the way. This, in addition to Jesus' messianic signs, was yet another compelling reason to call people to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God. So we've explored the question as to why the fourth evangelist chose to include the teachings and events in Jesus' life that he features in the gospel. We've seen how John carefully structured uh, chapters 5 through 10 in his gospel around Jesus' attendance of and ministry at a series of Jewish festivals 
Now, since John proceeds chronologically, albeit as we've seen selectively, we can see just how selective he is by taking a closer look at the festivals Jesus is shown to attend, because we know when they are typically celebrated. If the first feast in the festival cycle, though it's unnamed in the gospel, is the Feast of Tabernacles, and there's a certain amount of evidence for that in uh, textual variants and extra-biblical evidence, um, elaborate later, uh, that was a feast that was celebrated in September or October every year. So chapter 5 would occur in the fall. The following chapter, chapter 6, takes place at Passover, which was celebrated in the spring. And then chapter 7 opens with another tabernacles, assuming chapter 5 refers to tabernacles. So this shows how highly selective John was in the material, because that means that chapter 6 was really the only event he recorded in an entire year of ministry. And then finally, the Feast of Dedication took place in the winter. John explicitly tells his readers that in John 10, 22, which is kind of interesting because uh, he apparently thought that not all his readers might know when that feast was celebrated. Um, so when you look at this, the entire festival cycle in terms of time span spans a little over a year, like from September till December the following year, uh, in Jesus' three and a half year ministry, about a third of his ministry. All right, so Jesus' healing of the lame man then in chapter 5, uh, first the setting in the first three verses. In the introduction to his account, John masterfully sets the stage for the first messianic signs of Jesus narrated in the festival cycle. He tells us, number one, that there was a Jewish festival, verse 1. Number two, that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, the Jewish capital, still verse 1. And three, that there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades. This area, John tells us, was a common gathering place for a large number of invalids, whether blind, lame, or paralyzed. After this, a verse is missing in most of our English Bibles. Where did verse 4 go? Well, uh, verse 4, which is found only in a few later manuscripts, inserts... And this is what it says, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. This is just the type of material that was characteristic of so-called apocryphal or spurious gospels, meaning inauthentic gospels, which contained legendary material and reflected popular superstition. Just taught a PhD seminar uh, on our campus last week uh, on ancient Jewish and Greco-Roman literature. And there we looked at some apocryphal New Testament gospels. And, and this is the kind of thing that we notice there. So this, interestingly enough, is a later intrusion by some no doubt well-intentioned scribe who wanted to explain, as we'll later see, uh, the reference in verse 7 later on. But because it's later, John didn't write it, and therefore the verse is rightly omitted from the standard Greek text and most English translations. So we're jumping straight from verse 3, end of the setting, to verse 5, where the healing begins. After this, the narrative focuses on one such invalid, of the many that gathered there, a man who had been in this condition for 38 years. What must have seemed like an eternity for the man to be languishing without a realistic chance of healing. Just imagine. One of the reasons why John may have chosen to include this sign is that there was virtually no way this miracle could have been staged. 
The man had been lying there for 38 years and countless people had seen him. This is not an individual who had faked his illness so that Jesus could fraudulently support his claim uh, to be the Messiah. Rather, the man had been indisputably and irremediably crippled and stood in desperate and verifiable need of healing. So the long time and public nature of the man's predicament renders Jesus' healing of the man all the more credible and remarkable. If you're looking for hard evidence, here it is. Just as later in the case of Lazarus, who'd been dead for four days, this healing definitely passed the smell test. It was without a doubt a genuine healing. Take that, some of you who don't think Jesus was concerned about historicity. He definitely was. So now that the stage has been set, the healing ensues. The first thing Jesus does is ask the man, do you want to be healed? Well, of course the man wanted to be healed. Why did Jesus even bother to ask? Well, Jesus' question didn't merely stir the man's will to recover. I think it also, as it turns out, exposed the man's superstition. Sir, he replied, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another step, while I'm going, another steps down before me, verse 7. This verse is probably the reason, as I mentioned earlier, why some later scribes inserted verse 4 into some later Greek texts, as it alludes to the common superstition of an angel coming down and stirring the waters. So to the invalid's mind, his task is futile because how can he be first in the water when he's unable to walk? It's a catch-22. Humanly speaking, he'll never be able to find healing. So Jesus wants him to acknowledge uh, the impossibility of that healing on a nearly human scale. Uh, but then Jesus pointedly cuts straight through any such nonsense and folklore and legend and tells the man simply, love the simplicity, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the man promptly obeys. I think in our lives, similarly, there may be times, many times in my life, when we think there are insurmountable obstacles to God meeting our needs or answering our prayers. Yet what we fail to see is that what appears to be impossible for us is possible for God. In Jesus' terms, we need mountain-moving faith. Or better, we need faith in a God who can move spiritual mountains that we not only find impossible to move ourselves, but that we can't even imagine God can move. But he can. Now the aftermath. Interestingly, starting in uh, verse 9, John is withheld one important piece of information until this very point. Very interesting. Namely, that the healing took place on a Sabbath. You'd think he would have mentioned that in the setting, right, in, in verses 1 to 3, but he didn't. I think he's deliberate. Uh, he held off on sharing the, the piece of information until the time in which this becomes an issue in the story. And of course, at once, the Sabbath police, in form of Jewish authorities, uh, of the Jewish authorities confronted the man who'd just been healed after a 38-year-long illness. The infraction that drew the leader's ire was that the invalid, after having been healed by Jesus, picked up and carried his mat or bed, which was considered work and thus forbidden by Jewish Sabbath regulations, though, of course, not Scripture itself. So what does the healed invalid do when confronted regarding his supposed infraction? 
He blames Jesus. In effect, his response is, don't blame me, blame Jesus. He told me to pick up my bed, right? Well, thanks a lot. Jesus has just graciously and powerfully restored the man's ability to walk, which he so desperately uh, desired. And he repays Jesus by reporting him to the authorities. Um, I wonder if any of you has received this kind of ingratitude from someone whom you've helped in the past. Um, I occasionally have, and I know it hurt. Um, Now, when questioned further, the man admits that he doesn't even know who Jesus is or where to find him. But then a little later, Jesus finds him in the temple area. I tend to think of it as he bumps into him because there were huge crowds there. So the word find may or may not imply that Jesus was actually looking for him and then found him. Greek is a little broader there. Um, Of course, no verbal response on part of a man is recorded at this point. Jesus sternly warns him not to sin any longer so that nothing even worse may happen to him. So likely that implies that the man's illness had been due to sin. So the only thing that we're told at this point is the man at once went to the authorities, again, to tell on Jesus. It's really incredible. Not once, but twice. He puts the blame on Jesus and tries to get him into trouble, it seems. Why? What has Jesus done to deserve this? All he's done is heal the man. That's not only unbelief. That's an inexplicable lack of gratitude. When you think about it before we're too uh, harsh on the man, I think all of us at one time or another have been guilty of this kind of ingratitude. Um, Prior to my conversion, I essentially told him, thanks, but no thanks. I'm just not interested. I think we've all treated Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf with contempt or at least indifference. Now in verse 16, John tells us that This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It appears that Jesus deliberately healed on the Sabbath, almost as if to provoke the dispute that ensued. Were there not seven days in the week? I mean, he could have healed the man on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Sunday, right? Why choose uh, we but what we would call Saturday. Well, the truth is that Jesus did heal people on those other days of the week. As we see in the other gospels, not every healing or even most healings or miracles were performed on the Sabbath, but some were. And I think the point here is simply that if it was the Sabbath and Jesus encountered a person who required healing, he didn't allow the mere fact that it was a Sabbath to stand in the way of a healing. To do so would have been to capitulate to the unreasonable petty and legalistic Jewish stipulations regarding to uh, what was or was not permissible on a Sabbath. I think instead Jesus used those Sabbath healings to challenge Jewish traditions that were unbiblical and based not on the word of God, but on faulty human reasoning and conceptions about God. And in this way, Jesus asserted his superior knowledge and insight into God's character and requirements. As he said elsewhere, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. And Jesus, being God, had authority over the Sabbath. Uh, Thus, the Jewish authorities were correct in discerning that by healing on the Sabbath, Jesus implied he was God. And then in the verbal exchange that ensued, Jesus declared, The Father is working until now, and I am working. Clearly, he put himself on par with God. But what did he mean by statement, the Father is working until now? 
I think it's possible he here corrected the Jewish assumption that the Sabbath was absolute and that God had forever finished his work. Kind of like some sort of an early form of deism, that um, watchmaker approach. Uh, well, it's true that the Sabbath commemorated the last day of creation on, on which God, quote-unquote, rested from his labors, but every child knows that God never sleeps or gets tired and thus truly needs no rest. Isaiah writes, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So as Jesus pointed out, God the Father was continually at work. And in the same way, Jesus too was always working, including his work of healing people, if need be, even on the Sabbath. So in this way, in the inexorable dynamic of the Johanna narrative, what started out as an innocuous encounter and subsequent healing has slowly but surely morphed into a messianic sign, a pointer to Jesus' authority as the Christ and Son of God. The healing was not primarily about the invalid whose ability to walk was restored. It was primarily about Jesus' identity as the Christ and Son of God. And then in addition, secondarily, the story is also about people's need to respond to Jesus' disclosure of his true identity with personal faith in him. By that token, the Jewish leaders who opposed him and took offense at his perceived breaking of their Sabbath rules fell tragically short, as did the man who went off physically healed, but spiritually still in their sin. And the man's ignorance, unbelief, and outright ingratitude toward Jesus serve as perennial reminders that such abject disregard of Jesus leaves people subject to God's wrath and renders them without excuse. The fourth evangelist makes this explicit when he writes in another side, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So again, the issue was ultimately not Sabbath-breaking, as the Pharisees alleged. The real question was Jesus' true identity as God. And as the authorities rightly discerned, by calling God his own father, Jesus claimed equality with God. But as the believing reader knows, in truth, Jesus was not making himself equal to God. He truly was equal to God. But tragically, the authorities were unwilling to consider this Possibility because their hearts were hardened because of sin. Now, brothers and sisters, we desperately need hearts that are receptive and open and malleable to who Jesus is and what he wants us to do. You know, a Christian who hates fellow believers or even actively works to bring about their demise is a total hypocrite. Now, you may be saying that you don't hate other believers, but do you love them? Love means giving your life for others as Jesus did and to take positive action on their behalf, not merely ignoring them or even harboring contempt in a heart toward them. We all need to examine our hearts if we want to learn the lesson John wants to teach us through the story of the lame man and the Jewish authorities who were intransigent toward Jesus because of their sinful hardened, hateful hearts. So this was the first sign of Jesus in the festival cycle of John's gospel in uh, John 5 through 10. In the context of this literary unit, the sign sets the stage for the remainder 
of the festival cycle, which is marked by escalating controversy and hostility toward Jesus. And also, uh, in the context of the festival cycle, as we'll see later on uh, after lunch today, the man serves as a representative and contrasting character when compared with the man born blind in chapter 9, a character who responds very differently to the healing which also took place on a Sabbath, interestingly enough. In both cases, the fourth evangelist uses these healings as pointers to Jesus' identity as the Christ and Son of God and calls his readers to put their faith in Jesus. You know, Jesus is so worthy of our trust and unconditional allegiance. Praise God with me for the Apostle John, who is Jesus' closest follower during his earthly ministry. Here gives us a glimpse of Jesus' heart and true identity. Jesus truly is the Messiah and Son of God. He's God. And these signs are written that you and I might put our trust in him. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.